Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. The Seattle Seahawks finished off the regular season with a win. They go to 12-4 and four on the season. They beat the San Francisco 49ers down in Glendale, Arizona, 26-23. to 23. The Seahawks score 20 points in the fourth quarter to get the comeback win. And here to talk about it is Dan Viennes of the Dan Cave Podcast and of the newly uh, just coming to you soon, the Emerald City Sportscast. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, it's always good to talk to you coming off a break uh, or coming off a win, I should say. But it's been a while since we've chatted, too. I think uh, I think draft season was the last time we caught up. Yeah, it's been too long. It's uh, going through the season. It, it comes at you fast, doesn't it? Because here we are. We're, we're already through the regular season, Dan. It's funny. I I I feel like this season went by and fast forward and you would think it would be the opposite because of everything going on in the world and and the way it's affected me and I haven't been working at my normal job you would think not going through your normal routine would make the weeks go slower but i feel like it was just yesterday that this team was 5 and 0 flying high couldn't be stopped on offense couldn't stop anyone on defense and it was a whole different a whole different scenario but uh it really zoomed by it feels like two seasons and one for the seahawks you know talk about just you know, the the disruption to the entire thing here we are we're talking about a 49ers game being played down in glendale arizona and at this point of the year it just doesn't even seem weird for for this kind of thing to happen no fans in the stands and uh the seahawks are coming back home to have a wild card game against the rams in the playoffs and we'll, we'll get into that too but let's talk about this 49ers game first. And Dan, a three-point win over a team who could barely get enough strangers off the street to have a full roster. And here we are. We're somehow supposed to have some hope that this team can win some playoff games. You know, I think in the last four or five hours, we've probably gone through every emotion that we have gone through throughout the season, all all kind of packed into one. And And, you know, coming into this game, I try so hard to balance being an eternal optimist, which I which I mostly am, and also trying to be a realist. But this week I had somebody say to me on Twitter that, you know, this this is shaping up like I can see it now. Seahawks are going to come out sluggish. They're not going to take this game seriously. It's going to be a mess. Uh, like the Arizona game a couple years ago, they're going to lose, but then New Orleans and Green Bay are going to lose and we're going to have missed out on the chance to get the number one seed or, or whatever. And I, I, I disagreed vehemently with that. I just thought that the leadership on this defense and and the spirit that they were playing with and how well they were playing and wanting to finish it off and the fact that all the games were kicking off at the same time and they and they had something to play for i i just didn't see what happened today happening um at least through the first 3 quarters so i was i was disappointed by that surprised by that because of what you're touching on it's not just a game normally a win is a win but when you're going into the playoffs it's it's about how you're playing. And right. uh, I think Jonathan Vilma even said that today when it was six to three. He said something along the lines of, well, I'd, you know, it doesn't really matter if it ends six, three, it wins. It's not at this time of the year. You want to see them playing well. And up until about 10 minutes left in the game, I had some real concerns about how this team could compete in the playoffs. Yeah, fortunately, they do turn it on in the fourth quarter. There were a couple things that they were playing for in this game, Dan. They were, they were playing, obviously, to get to 12 wins. That's only been done five times in the franchise now. This is the, the fifth time this year. 
they're playing for a, a mountain of incentives, apparently. And that's what it looked like to me in this game. The fourth drive of the game, it was really the last drive of the game before we just when we saw this offense disappear up until the fourth quarter. But it was on that fourth drive. You had DK Metcalf breaking Steve Largent's franchise record for the most receiving yards in a season. You know, he ties it on one catch. The very next catch, it goes back right back to him. He picks it up. He gets the record. You got Tyler Lockett setting the franchise record for the most receptions in a season. And he's the first player to have 100. We, we'll talk about that more a little bit, too. But, you know, he gets it on that same drive, gets the franchise record. And on top of it, they're the two, the, the first two 1,000-yard receivers since 1995. So, and that all came on that drive. So it was it was like they were, that's what they had to play for in this game. It was, it was kind of what the appearance was to me. Yeah, and at that point in the game, it felt like, even though the first two drives were unsuccessful and, it felt like one of those those games. I didn't think the 49ers could score. I really didn't. A couple of field goals, maybe. I didn't think that uh, that Bethard could lead them on long drives. I didn't think they'd be able to put the ball in the end zone against us. Early on, it just felt like they were getting in their own way. That eventually they were going to figure it out on offense and uh, and and put some drives together. So with that drive that you're talking about. It was enjoyable. It was fun to watch because it seemed like a sideshow. It just seemed like sort of an obligatory step towards, you know, eventually they were going to win the game one way or another. But uh, they just it didn't get better until the fourth quarter. They just kept getting in their own way. And it just seemed like the Giants game all over again in that the game plan seemed wrong and it just seemed like they weren't making any adjustments. And it kind of goes back to my biggest criticism of Brian Schottenheimer these days where I feel like when he struggles, it's because he really lacks feel for the game and the ability to make quick adjustments on the fly. And it just seemed like that second and third quarter when they were really struggling and we were all starting to to think, okay, here we go again, that they just kept trying the same approach and it wasn't working. They just kept slamming their head against the wall. Um, but it was fun to get that stuff out of the way. I just wish they would have got one of the other incentives out of the way early as well. Well, I wish that they would have gotten in the end zone on those two drives because both of those first two drives early on that ended in field goals, they stalled out once they got inside the red zone. Had the Seahawks, had, had they been able to go into halftime with 14 points offensively, I, I don't think I would have really complained about the offense all that much. So th that's how much different this game felt is if you put two touchdowns on the board after getting inside the red zone rather than field goals. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're able to close this off a lot more comfortably in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and that's been Schottenheimer's strength this year. You know, he's been really good on those scripted first 15 or 20 plays or whatever it is he scripts, but they've typically, for the most part, been really good early in games. It looked so disjointed in the first three quarters that I, that I even asked myself, okay, we're on the verge of the playoffs. We may end up seeing a team, the chances were going to be good that we were going to see a team that we'd already seen twice in this year, whether that was Arizona or, or the Rams, and, and it's turned out that it's the Rams. Are they holding back? Are they not Are they not opening the whole playbook? Are they purposely being vanilla and conservative on offense because they don't want to show too much? I hate that approach, but the way that they were calling plays made me wonder. It does make you wonder. I, I even felt myself, I had to wonder if there's something wrong with Russell Wilson because you you brought up Brian Schottenheimer and I, I'm kind of curious what you think. Do you, do you think this is more Schottenheimer and play calling type issues or is there something 
that seems to be the matter with Russell Wilson. And it, it seems weird to say that, Dan, because we saw in this game, he had another fourth quarter comeback. He has 24 in his career. He, he had another game winning drive, 31 in his career. Uh, with the two touchdowns, he goes ahead of Dan Marino for touchdown passes through his first nine years. But I look at the this team through the first half and the second half, and through the first half of the season, Russ was at eight and a half yards per attempt. And through the second half, he's down under about six and a half, and he was just five yards per attempt tonight. It was his worst performance to uh, just ahead of that game against Washington. So going into the playoffs, I look at Russ and I just don't see the same type of quarterback. And it's not the the let Russ cook stuff. It's just like his decision making seems to be he's he's not willing to to throw on time in tempo. And it just looks off compared to what we saw earlier. Yeah, it, it, obviously, the truth always lies kind of somewhere in the middle. Some of it's on Russ. But I've come to believe, middle of the season when he was really struggling, I think he was struggling. And it was the criticism of him was legitimate at that time. I believe a good offensive coordinator can mitigate some of that, though, with how he calls a game. And I think you can take some of that out of Russ's hands. If, if Russ is struggling with the idea that he wants the big play and he holds the ball too long because he's waiting for something to develop downfield, then don't call plays that require, you know, slow developing. Don't call four verticals, right? And and I saw no attempt through the first three and a half quarters today to even when the the San Francisco pass rush was was having an effect. Obviously our our entire starting unit wasn't there up front on offense. There was really no attempt to change it up. There was no movement of Russell Wilson trying to move the pocket or rolling him out. There was uh, the the quick game wasn't being called. There were some plays. There was a second and was it a second and 13 early in the game when we all saw it. Russell Wilson had Jacob Hollister running a, a little shallow cross with, with nothing but green in front of him. And it looked to all of us like that should have been easy for Russell to spot. And he missed him because he was looking deep and, and he got sacked. But I feel like we've seen that in the past. What always stands out to me is I think it was week two last year at Pittsburgh when we were getting killed by the pass rush and they made a quick adjustment early in that game and it was quick, 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 quick. And that was, uh, maybe it was, no, it was last year, week two, Will Disley had the big game, Metcalf had his first mm -hmm. touchdown as a pro in that game. And it was, Russ just surgically took that defense apart because Schottenheimer took it upon himself to call that type of game. And I don't feel like we saw that against the Giants. And that's why it looks so familiar today. We didn't see that. Then in the fourth quarter, it changed. Literally, as uh, you know, I don't know if Brian Schottenheimer reads my tweets, but I tweeted that, you know, here's here's the, all the things we're not seeing. And they started doing some of that. They were moving Russell Wilson. Um, they, he threw it to Chris Carson a couple of times. It seemed like they were trying to get the quick stuff. And then that, that started opening up some running lanes as well. And we saw the balance there. So I think it's a combination of the two right now. I put, I think Russ has kind of pulled himself out of that really bad stretch in the middle of the season. I put more of it on Schottenheimer right now. And and the questions I have about this team are about his ability to game plan against some of these playoff defenses. Well, one of the things that they have done at least is limit the amount of turnovers. And that was a big issue through Russell's slump early on. It's the big plays. And he's always looking for the big plays, which is kind of the ironic thing in this game, Dan, is that his biggest play was a check down throw to Chris Carson. Yeah, and I, and I, th I think it's kind of a double-edged sword now because I do feel like after that really rough stretch that Russell went through that started in, what was that, week six or week seven in Arizona, the, the comeback loss, 
And then he had the turnover, the flurry of turnovers there for three or four weeks. I feel like he he's a little more hesitant now. And so you have him still looking for the big play, but not as willing to pull the trigger on those deep shots. And, and that's not a real recipe for success because then what that leads to is hesitating while you're running slow developing plays and you're putting pressure on an offensive line that's banged up right now. So, Well, the offensive line, it kept him upright enough to get the win, the comeback victory in the end. And so we get to celebrate that. There's another celebration going on in the David Moore household. And Dan, we're going to talk about that coming up next. Talking to Dan Viennes of the Dan Cave podcast, also the Emerald City Sportscast. And we are getting to some of these incentives we talked about. Well, not incentives in terms of franchise records and that sort of thing with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. But David Moore apparently had an incentive in his contract. He just needed one more catch to get $100,000. And that is why at the end, when you expected a kneel down from Russell Wilson in the offense, he did a little short pitch to David Moore. And Dan, I I know in that type of situation, you want to get the guys there, you know, especially $100,000. That's a huge amount of money, especially for a guy that they asked to take a pay cut at the beginning of the year. But I think there were some of us that just cringed just a little bit at the the potential that, gosh, if you fumble it there and uh, you screw that up, that the 49ers get in position to potentially tie the game. But they didn't. They're able to kneel down and close it out. And David Moore is $100,000 richer. Yeah, I just, I, I don't like the appearance of it. You know, I mean, it's it's a situation where you should just, if you have enough, if you have the clock in your favor, you just take the kneel down. If you need, if you need one more first down, try to run for it. But I just, they had an entire game. And to my, to my recollection, they didn't target him the entire game up until that point. Am I correct? Did I, did I miss a play? They had some plays that were called for him, uh, according to Russell in the post-game press conference. It just, he was covered up in those situations. So he was trying to get it to him earlier. But and all that effort that, that we had... talked about to get to get Lockett and Metcalf the record early on, I don't see why they couldn't have just, you know, dialed up a screen pass or, or a quick little out or something to David Moore somewhere along the yeah. line because it just, it just doesn't look great. Yeah, and obviously, you know, a, a play like that, you should be able to dial up anytime. Shoot. When they were down on the goal line, when they were just handing the ball off to Alex Collins over and over again, you can you can throw one of those plays in there probably and and get the job done though. So yeah, it was it was a little bit strange at the end, but we did get the explanation and, and we heard Russell was uh, apparently he had to change the play at the end because you know, obviously the call came down to to go to the knee, but he said he had been talking to Austin Davis, the quarterbacks coach. And so he he kind of had some communication with him on the sidelines, whether it was just looks or w- whatever, but able to get that play in for David Moore at the end. Well, good for David Moore. And, uh, it, you know, he has, I do think that he's been an, a real underrated piece of this offense this year, that he's come through with some big plays last week uh, was a great example um, on the fourth down play. But it's it's kind of a weird way to go out against a rival. We're going to hear about this again. We're going to hear about this the next time the San Francisco 49ers play this. They're not going to forget about that play. And and uh, I think that could have been avoided. And I suppose, you know, it's one thing if he turns it up and, and takes it for a touchdown, but he did just run out of bounds. So uh, may, maybe it won't be that much of an issue. <laughs> the, I guess the positive side of this is is that's why guys want to play here. Um, yeah. Most guys. <laughs> uh, Snacks Harrison, apparently not. But that's why, you know, guys want to play here because it's an organization that looks out 
for their players. We see it every year. We see the opposite of this, where guys are that close to incentives and and teams pull them, bench them, uh, specifically don't call plays for them um, because they want to avoid that and save some salary cap space or save some payroll. Um, that's obviously not the issue in Seattle, and it's why it's why so many people like to make this their home. Yeah, and I did hear some talk earlier this week. I don't know if it was Bruce Arians who was talking about it or or somebody else who said they played for Arians and that he would he would know going into the that last game of the season who he needed to try and get certain numbers to throughout the game. So it's a weird thing to try and balance that, okay, we need to play the game, we need to play to win. But obviously throughout this game, whether it was Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf or in, in this case with David Moore, they they knew all of these incentives that they were trying to fit in in this game. Oh, you saw it clearly on the Metcalf record because he he only got five on the on the first slant pattern, and then and so he he knew he knew he needed six. He knew that was only five. They ran the next play to him, and I think he only gained one or two on that next one. It was just a short little shot too, and he immediately threw that ball out of bounds because he knew that was a record breaker. So, right. I mean, that's you know it's 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 cool that a coach cares about that kind of stuff. It would be frustrating though if they didn't win. Yeah, hundred percent. Or like you said, what if he'd? What if he had? Well, it, it it was the touch pass, right? So it would have been an incomplete pass. But if he had fumbled, it, well, unless he caught it and then fumbled it, uh, you know, run into the outside or something. Yeah, yeah, that would have gone. You know, that would have gone down in the annals of like the the Joe Pasarczyk Herm Edwards yeah. play. Well, let's move over. We we've talked a lot of offense. Let's talk about the defense in this game because through the first half and and even in through the third quarter, for the most part. You know, the defense in this game was playing extremely well. Uh, you had, I, uh, just to call out a couple people that had a, a great game, Benson Mayoa, he had the the forced fumble that really helped put that game out of reach with Alex Collins, had another sack on the day, so finished with two. So a really nice game from Benson Mayoa. Yeah, and and I think, and I even tweeted this out, I, I really hope they bring him back next year. You, he's an example of how much better Carlos Dunlap has made everybody along that defensive line because we have a guy now that can win one-on-one that that has to be game planned for and the the opposing offensive line really has to account for everywhere he goes it just it slides the rest of those guys into complementary roles instead of the pressure being on them the first four five six weeks of the season and then he was banged up i remember there was a point where some of us were questioning whether there was even a spot on the roster for mayo when he came off the injured list after we acquired Dunlap because he just wasn't productive as a complimentary piece. Boy, he's been really good the last month or so uh, against the run and and getting to the quarterback and and making impact plays like he did today. And and you know we've seen a lot of growth from those guys and Alton Robinson, the rookie, and L.J. Collier, and how much better they are because they don't have to try to be the guy. And the expectations from the fans are also that they don't have to be the guy. And so I think they're a little more realistic in what they expect from those guys. And and great game from him. I thought Puna Ford was really great today, especially after Jaron Reed went out. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as much as it's just so weird to me that you you said it was a season of two halves. Literally, the first half of the season, the defense couldn't stop anyone. The offense looked championship caliber. And now it looks like a defense that can win a championship for you if you can just muster enough offense. And the offense is struggling. It's crazy how they've turned it around and how the addition of Adams and Carlos Dunlap uh, being healthy again, too, has transformed this defense, saved Ken Norton Jr.'s job, um, saved a lot of questions in the offseason. Because honestly, eight, 10 weeks ago, I think we probably all thought there were six, seven, eight jobs on that defense up for grabs. And now, you know, you'd like to bring the whole the whole unit back. 
Yeah, it's uh, even even a guy like KJ Wright, who going into this season, you're saying, gosh, is is this you know one year too many for a guy like KJ Wright going into the final year of his contract? A lot of people looking at that saying, oh, seven and a half million for KJ, you know, get rid of that and and you can use that on the defensive line. But KJ Wright, even in this game, Dan, uh, he blew up Kyle Juszczyk. He he had one other play where you know blew up a guy for you know a screen pass for a loss. And he's just had another outstanding season. I love the position change and the foresight, you know, to make that happen with him and and account for his kind of loss of long speed and ability to cover guys downfield from the weak side spot. And and he's another guy, you know, they got to figure out the money. There's a bunch of guys that 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 are up for for deals this offseason on the defensive side of the ball and on offense. We got Chris Carson, some other guys too. But you'd like to see him figure it out because you know, I know he wants to be here. He and Bobby Wagner are best friends. I know he'd, he'd like to close his career out here. I'd know they'd like to have him back. But if he demands $7.5 million again, it's probably not going to happen because you got to pay Jamal Adams. You got to pay your corners. You got to figure something out there. And it's fun to watch the Seahawks play defense again. And and it does give you some confidence, even with the offense struggling, going into, into the playoffs, that they can match up with just about anyone. You know, I've, if this defense is healthy, and we don't know about Adams and Reed right now, but if, right. if, if they're healthy, they can match up well against, I'm not saying they'll shut the Saints and the Packers down, but they can cause problems for those teams if the offense can can control the ball enough and put enough points on the board. Certainly two months ago, let me put it this way, I'd f- I feel better knowing that the defense can match up in the playoffs against anyone and the offense is struggling than the other way around. When the offense was flying high and the defense couldn't stop anybody, I, I wouldn't have had any expectations of winning a playoff game or going deep in the playoffs in that scenario. So I, I'm just, it's really, really fun to watch the transformation of this D. That is the the wild thing about the season because you're absolutely right. We we watched this defense through the first four or five weeks of the season. And I know there are a lot of us saying, yeah, the, this offense is great. I, I love scoring 30 points every single week, but if you can't get a two score lead and close out a team in the fourth quarter, you're you're not going to be able to win in the playoffs. And at the very least, we see and have history of Russell Wilson with these fourth quarter comebacks, being able to lead the team, whether or not he's had three good quarters or not able to finish off a game and and get things going then. So, yeah, I, I, I would say if I had to pick going into the playoffs now, I would rather have the second half iteration of this team. Yeah, me too, because you do have more confidence the offense can turn it on at any given time or that they'll find some things in a matchup to to make it work. It's and I hope people I hope people give enough credit because I believe it's due to Ken Norton Jr. and Pete Carroll for this transformation. It's because it's not just as simple as, well, Adams got healthy and we traded for Dunlap. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the Buffalo game was Adam's first game back, and Dunlap was on the roster at that point, and that was a debacle. So it wasn't just getting those guys. It was figuring out how to make the best use of them, changing some things in the scheme that weren't working, figuring it in doctrine, you know, working in guys like Jordan Brooks, who's been a revelation, and DJ Reed, and and making those adjustments, and, and not just where guys are playing and who should be playing those spots, but scheme-wise and when to blitz and how aggressive to be and what coverages to use and how they've gotten better at disguising things and being less predictable. That's kind of a sea change in philosophy for Pete Carroll. And and we may never know how 
much he has stuck his hand into this or how much of it falls on Ken Norton's shoulders. But um, those guys took so much criticism for the performance of the defense in the first half of the season. You have to give them credit for what's happened since. Well, you go back to that Buffalo game, and I want to talk about Jordan Brooks a little bit too, but since you brought up the Buffalo game and with Jamal Adams and Dunlap being in that game, the one big difference that you didn't mention, and then I think the one other guy that you have to give credit to is John Schneider, because he's the one guy that went out and got DJ Reed, and DJ Reed has been a revelation versus you know having Trey Flowers and Quentin Dunbar on the roster. It's just night and day difference in terms of your corners when you have Shaquille Griffin and DJ Reed. And he's he's... He's been so good that he literally has forced Pete Carroll to change a lifetime philosophy. I mean, he he just has not ever played five nine corners on the boundary. Not not in the right. NFL anyway. There may have been times at USC where he did it, but you know, it's we all know it. We go into the draft and we and the first thing we look at when we're scouting potential cornerback draft picks for the Seahawks is does he have thirty two inch arms and and you know is he six foot? Is he one ninety five? Is he Oh, he's not. Well, then he's a slot guy. He's not going to be. He's not a Seahawks draft pick. DJ Reed's five nine. If he's that, and he he's the starting cornerback going forward. And it's not just because Quentin Dunbar got hurt. It's not just because Trey Flowers got hurt. Pete Carroll was emphatic in saying two weeks ago that he's the guy now, even when those guys come back. And so it'll be interesting. We may not see the effects of it in twenty twenty one because we don't have any draft picks. But it'll be interesting to see if it changes their philosophy at all when it comes to acquiring corners, you know, kind of in the big picture. Because the way they got him and the, and the fact that it came against a division rival as well, it was genius. And it just really shows kind of the brilliance of John Schneider. I know there's some people out there that, that love to criticize him. No general manager is perfect. But um, this team would not be where they are today. And they might not even be in the playoffs at all if not for the moves he made in the last three months. Well, the other reason I wanted to go back and talk about Jordan Brooks, he led the team today with nine tackles. And yes, you talked earlier about that move from K.J. Wright to move to the strong side linebacker. It opens up that weak side linebacker spot. A big part of that's because Bruce Irvin had the injury. You know, who knows if any of this happens, but it does feel uh, he makes this defense different because of his speed. And uh, it's just been really nice to see what he's been able to do the second half of the season. It's always nice to see rookies come in and be able to replicate in the NFL what we saw on film from them and what they did in college. Some people can't. Right. You know, we see it a lot, most notably with quarterback. Aaron Curry is a perfect example. Best linebacker prospect in 10 years when he was drafted, right? Um, Right. Brian Bosworth is another one. The Seahawks are famous for for taking guys that were legendary in college and and couldn't replicate that in the pros. But what we saw on tape from Jordan Brooks, the guy that was phenomenal against the run, just great at diagnosing uh, run lanes and 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 reading blocks and shedding blocks and getting angles, and then when he gets there, punishing the ball carry. And we saw that. And we saw, despite what some lazy analysts tried to tell us when he was drafted last year in the first round, his first three years. Uh, in college, we saw him also cover downfield and do it well. And he gets to do more of that from the weak side spot as well. And so I don't think it's what they drafted him specifically for. I think they saw him as a backup to Bobby Wagner and a guy that would play the strong side. But he's he's been great and he doesn't look like a rookie and hasn't for about six weeks. And, and anytime they stuff a running play, he's number 56 is always in the pile. He's always there. And it's um it's it's a breath of fresh air. You know, I hope that this criticism that 
John Schneider can't draft in the first round starts to die out. Now, he's not going to get criticized for that for the next two years because we don't have any first-round picks. But um, but I think LJ Collier has shown well this year, too, in the role that he fits and is suited for and and not as some dynamic Leo edge rusher we all hoped he would be just because that was the need that year that he was drafted and all those guys have been taken. But both those guys have been really solid this year. Well, I like where your head's at with regard to John Schneider and that he won't have any first-round picks because I saw the report Sunday morning that the Lions were possibly targeting John Schneider as their general manager. Yeah, a buddy of mine um, and longtime friend of the Dan Cave and guest on the show, Eric Briggs, texted me this morning and he said, do you think Schneider would have any interest in the Detroit job? And it, it was early. I hadn't even had my first cup of coffee yet and uh, hadn't even opened Twitter. And so I thought he was just speculating and spitballing. And we do that back and forth uh-huh. a lot. Um and I, I, my answer was no, because they don't have an, an El Gaucho in Detroit, um, which is the restaurant I work at. He's a regular right. there. He loves it. And um, it, ha ha, because I didn't think it was that serious. And then I check Twitter and I see the reports are all over the place. And, and um, on its surface, because I always like to, you know, as a fan, you want to just say, oh, he would never want to go there. But as more of an analyst and, and a journalist, I like to, you know, try to look at both sides. Well, is it an attractive job? Maybe it is because he would have full control, final authority over the over the roster. He would have his say in who the coach is. He's never had a chance to do that in the NFL. Um, it's closer to where he grew up and cut his teeth uh, in Green Bay. But the more I looked into it, first of all, there's some real questions about how easy it would be for Detroit to even approach him. Um, right. Because of how the language works. There was a really good piece on pro football talk. They don't always do the best work. But this one was very, very um, well-defined on, on what the language is in those clauses and that um, the difference between final authority and, uh, primary, authority. and primary authority and and all of those things. Look, John Schneider may have to uh, take a back seat at times to Pete Carroll, but that doesn't happen. Uh, Pete Carroll is always the first guy to stand up and say, John made this Jamal Adams trade happen. John made the Marshawn Lynch trade happen. Wanted that guy for two years, found a way to get him. John made the Carlos Dunlap thing happen. He got DJ Reed. He follows Carroll's guidance. He knows what kind of players he likes, and Carroll's involved in the process. But even though Carroll's vice president of football operations and contractually has final authority over the 53-man, John Schneider runs the show. And he's built a home here, and he and his wife have a, a foundation here. It would take a lot to pry him away from the Seahawks. And I don't think living in Detroit is going to be enough, but I do think it's very advantageous for John Schneider with just two years left on his current deal to be coveted by other teams if he's thinking about negotiating an extension. So he's not, he's not mad about this report, I can assure you. No, and one of the little nuggets in that pro football talk report that you're referring to is the fact that he was up for contract negotiations, that his, his time in Seattle is is scheduled to be done in 2022. So yes, it comes at a time where he might be negotiating. So if it happened to be, oh, I don't know, an agent uh, who was leaking that type of report of the Lions being interested, yeah, maybe that's where that comes from and it helps him get paid. And we see this with players and with coaches that uh, this is how negotiations are done sometimes. So I do think that that's a big part of why we saw this report today. 
Well, and also we've seen it so far from, from the Lions are are casting a, the widest net I think I've ever seen in both a coaching and a GM search. They've interviewed just about everybody on the planet. Um, they're looking college pro. They're looking everywhere. It doesn't, you know, the report didn't say that they were putting all of their focus on John Schneider and he was he was the big white whale they wanted to land. It was that they were going to pursue him. They were going to look into it. Um, it may just be as much as that. But I also, I just think while I do wonder if Schneider at some point in his career wants to have a say in hiring a coach, and I was a little surprised at Carroll's most recent extension that it was so long. Because mm-hmm. if you remember the the last two extensions they signed within a couple of weeks of each other, John's was for right. a little bit longer. And so I, at the time, I remember thinking, well, that might work out, you know, and, and Carol might retire by then. And then John gets to hire his own guy. Um, with Carol signing for five more years, John Schneider's in on those negotiations, most assuredly. Um, you know, those two guys really enjoy working together. And I don't see Schneider as the kind of guy that's, that needs any more of a title or any more power because I think he pretty much gets whatever he wants here. Well, another thing to watch in this offseason, Adam Gase fired from the New York Jets. I think that was an expected move. And we also heard rumblings early on today, along with the John Schneider news, that Brian Schottenheimer possibly considered as the coach for the Jets next year. Well, um, I'm just going to pat myself on the back for this because if you go back, I should look it up. But I think week three, or four uh, on the Dan Cave podcast. Uh, in fact, I think that the title of the the episode is "Enjoy Brian Schottenheimer while you have him." This was obviously when the when the offense is running high or riding high, and this was well before the reports that he had been recommended by a member of the Houston Texans search committee as a candidate. There, um, I said at the time, the Jets make all the sense in the world. He's he worked for Woody Johnson under Rex Ryan. Um, he's a likable guy. He's well-respected around the league. People like Brian Schottenheimer and, and, and don't ever get it twisted. That's a big part of these hires sometimes is, is can I enjoy having a guy in the building? Especially we see this in baseball all the time, right? You have the, the player's manager, he fails. So you bring in the tough guy, he fails. You bring in the player's manager and you kind of alternate. Adam Gase was not well-liked by anyone, his players and, and most assuredly probably ownership and people in that building as well. Hard to work with. Schottenheimer's not that. And he's also, for for as much as you may want to criticize his play calling, I've done it right here today um, and will do from time to time if it's warranted. There is no question that he's really good at one thing, and that is developing quarterbacks. We've right. seen him do it with young quarterbacks. He got the best year out of Jacoby Brissett's career uh, when Andrew Luck was hurt in Indianapolis. He got uh, two productive years out of Mark Sanchez early on in his career before Mark Sanchez showed the world that he really wasn't an NFL quarterback. Um, and he he took Russell Wilson to a new level. He he taught a guy that we th- all thought probably had gone about as far as he could go, as far as mechanics go and how he approached the game, and he made him better. And they're a team that that's going to draft a quarterback. I, I'm sure they are, the number two pick, and whatever they do with Sam Darnold, whether they keep him or or trade him, remains to be seen. It does make sense. It's it's not just something that, you know, if, as a cynical Seahawks fan that doesn't like the fact that he, you know, he calls too many of this or not enough of that or whatever. That's not always the way that other owners and general managers think. He's a part of a successful organization. That's who we want to be. How do I get a piece of that? Schottenheimer makes sense for the Jets. 
Yeah, I think that of all the coaches that could be gone for for hiring jobs in the offseason, it uh, well, we saw Brennan Carroll get hired away to Arizona be the offensive coordinator. And I do think that this will probably be the last year for Brian Schottenheimer. And and for all the reasons that you said, not that, you know, he's a, a great offensive coordinator. I actually I think that he's going to be a better head coach than an offensive coordinator as far as, you know, the to hand off the play calling stuff. I. I think that he's a guy that you can probably, you know, he can turn the Jets into, you know, nine and seven type football team. That's why I think he's a good candidate because t- most of the time, head coaches don't call the plays anymore. Um, when they do, it doesn't often work out that well. Um, and so I could see him being a guy that brings someone with him and, and hands off some of those responsibilities. I think he's he's extremely well organized. He's he's a good teacher, and that's one of the first things that Pete Carroll pointed out when he hired him is, uh, you know, watch this guy in practice. And it, and it is. He's one of the most fun things to watch when you go out to practice because he is in total control of what's going on out there. What would be interesting, and it, we'll see, you know, there's going to be other candidates too. It's going to be an attractive job for a number of reasons. They have a ton of picks and it's New York and that appeals to some people. I think there's two things that will fascinate me if they play out. If he's not hired by anyone else, does he come back? I think after the Giants game, Pete Carroll had some things to say about the offense and about their lack of ability to to adjust during the game, where when you follow Pete Carroll enough and you watch enough of these press conferences, you can tell, as positive as he tries to be, you can tell when he's mad. And he was not happy with Brian Schottenheimer. And he didn't call him by name, but he's done this with Russell Wilson a couple of times, too, where you kind of know, oh, he's he just threw some shine on Russell. Oh yeah, like with his turnovers or uh, toward the middle of the season. He he's been doing that with Brian um a little bit this year and so I wonder given how the offense has stalled the second half of the season and knowing that time is, you know, time is now. This is Russell's prime. We need to make the most of this. Um will he make a change if Brian doesn't go elsewhere? And then of course the next question would be who would who would take his place? But uh, you know, one thing at a time. It, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that yet. I had just seen the Gase news uh, before we went on together here, but I I called it three months ago. So I'm going to take a little credit for that. Well, we'll see how it goes uh, through the the interview process when that actually can happen. Now with the Seahawks going into the playoffs, he's going to interview great. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, he's a pro. I mean, <laughs> considering who his dad is, considering how long he's been in the league. The job's not too big for him. I, I think he's absolutely going to interview well. And I, I I do kind of expect that even if it's not the Jets, another team's going to end up with him. Yeah. Well, that is not a concern for the Seahawks as far as hiring a new head coach because they are going to the playoffs once again under Pete Carroll with Russell Wilson at the helm. They take on the Los Angeles Rams. It's going to be this Saturday at 1.40 Pacific time. It'll be the second game on the schedule. Two times in three weeks that the that the Seahawks get to face the LA Rams potentially going to be this time facing a different quarterback. It sure doesn't sound like Jared Goff's going to play. The fact that after the game, when he was asked about it today, McVay said, I don't know. McVay is really transparent and really open when talking about player injuries. And um, it's just, it's hard for me to believe that a right-handed quarterback could have surgery on his right thumb and come back and play in less than two weeks. Cause it's a Saturday kickoff. And, and be able to make the kind of throws that you need to make. Um, but even if he does, I mean, how, how cool is it as a Seahawks fan to be looking forward to a playoff game with the Rams, knowing that from what we saw last week, 
they finally have figured out how to attack that McVeigh offense, and they finally have the the right players on the field to match up and and attack what they do. Now again, there's some injuries that we need to account for. It sounds like Jamal Adams has a good chance to play. That it wasn't a serious injury. Um, Jaron reads another story, but I don't know that he would be as key as losing Adams would be. I just I feel I would feel really confident about facing the Rams even if Goff comes back because I I just think we've kind of figured out that McVeigh magic. So help me, Dan, if we lose Jaron Reed the week that we cut Snacks Harrison and he gets picked up by the Packers. Yeah, and I, I didn't like that decision at all. And and uh, I've, I've gotten some blowback on that from from fans that say, well, he didn't want to be here. You know, he didn't have to leave. He could have he chosen to take the demotion and, and still been available. That's not the issue. With the playoffs a week away and... Brian Monet having not played for 10 weeks and Harrison was playing really well. He had finally gotten into shape and he had bided his time and he had, he had resisted overtures from other teams to poach him off the practice squad. And he was playing really well, even as a rotational piece, you know, going up against some of these teams in the playoffs. If you're facing Alvin Kamara, if you're facing Aaron Jones and the Packers, you want to have that extra run defender. I just feel like the reason he asked for his release is because they told him he wasn't going to be active on game day. Find a way to make him active on game day to keep that player because now I, it sure didn't look good with especially now hearing that Reed had injured that oblique earlier in the game, came back to play with it, and then injured it again. That sounds like the kind of thing that requires core surgery. We've seen it before. He'll be out for the year. And 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 that's a big, big loss that Damon Harrison could have just mitigated a little bit. Yeah, I uh, gosh, I I hope that Reed is somehow okay enough to play out the season. Because, it did not yeah, look that, good. I'm no doctor, really, no. <laughs> but that no, didn't. Look I'm holding out hope, Dan. Stop trying to bring me down. <laughs> I know. I'm well, trying the reverse thing. You know, if yeah, I just yeah. he's, well, he's dog. Uh, There's no way he's gonna play. I mean, it's hard enough for me going into a game against the Rams. Yes, it feels like that Pete Carroll finally solved McVeigh. but you got to show me twice in a row now within three weeks, and man. As much as Jared Goff feels like he's important to the Rams offense, I, I don't think I, I now we didn't have a chance to really watch that game against Arizona because it's going on at the same time. So we'll have to go back and look at that. But my worry is that the Rams found a way to upgrade their quarterback going into the playoffs. Well, they didn't. I mean, one of their touchdowns was on a pick six today, and uh, I think they only scored one other time. It wasn't like they were dynamic today, and and they kind of struggled with that Arizona team that was missing Kyler Murray too after being knocked out early. So, the the Rams Rams fans are sitting at home worried just the same, you know, because they're not going into the into the playoffs on any kind of a high note either. So, I mean, that obviously, I always want to pay pay respect to that defense, but you know, I I feel like, like I said, I feel like we match up on defense against them, and I feel like uh, we we did enough on offense against them, but we can play better. He's Dan Viennes of the Dan Cave Podcast. Dan, you also have a new uh, venture coming up for you, coming up soon. Where do people go to learn about that? Where do people go to listen uh, if they want to check that out? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's a really cool uh, venture to steal your word. Tomorrow, actually, a new internet sports talk radio network called the 365 Sportscast. It's all one word. Uh, debuts tomorrow. And it feeds it, a couple of guys that have had a... Uh, a a successful talk radio show on terrestrial radio in the New York market for many, many years had decided to launch this network and do it uh, on the internet. Uh, there's some pro athletes that have shows. And then there's guys like me that they sought out 
and found through podcasts uh, that, that will do regional shows as well. And so they had heard the Dan Cave and they liked that approach. And so um, my show is going to be Wednesdays, 10 o'clock Pacific time, one o'clock Eastern time. It's called the Emerald City Sportscast. It'll be similar to what the Dan Cave was, except it'll be more timely. It'll be a live show. It'll be more topical. Um, it, it'll feature more live guests. I would sometimes, I would often do the podcast just solo and I, I'm excited about it. We're all kind of freaking out on the eve of this thing about the tech part of it. Cause we're all doing this from our own homes and there's a lot of tech that goes into it, but, uh, I'm sure we'll get all that squared away, but yeah, it's called the Emerald city Sportscast. The way you can listen to it is a couple of different ways. The 365sportscast.com is the website. And right there, when you go to the homepage, it'll have a listen live player embedded in the site. You can listen to whatever show is streaming at the time. Old shows will also be archived there. If you're an Android user, the app is ready. It's out now. You can go to the Google Play Store and download the 365 Sportscast app. You can also set it up as an Alexa skill um, and teach it to, uh, to play the 365 Sportscast network. The iPhone app, is almost ready and should be ready in the next week or two. Um, and really, those will be the best ways to listen to it on the apps. So Android's ready now. You can check that out. iPhone will be ready soon. Alexa's ready now. And you can always check out the website. So yeah, that all starts tomorrow. Be sure and check that out. And if, if you need some help with that, follow Dan on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. And while you're on the web, head on over to fieldgoals.com. Check out all of the articles coming out of this game, leading up to the game against the Rams. And be sure and get your ins and outs to Clinton Bonner at Clinton Bon on Twitter. Use the hashtag 3i30. We will be back on Tuesday recapping the game in his unique way. Stay tuned for that. Subscribe to this show, SBNation.com slash NFL podcasts. And until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks. Go Hawks.